Hey, Jason, welcome to Masters of Medic. It is awesome to have you on the show. Um, for those of you who don't know who you are, maybe we could start by you introducing yourself and, and how you got into this wonderful world of sales of ours. Oh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I already feel embarrassed that I'm on a Masters of Medic thing because it's almost, <laughs> I thought you already feel on a pedestal, which is definitely not uh, the case, but I am delighted to be here and uh, to work, you know, to talk with someone so passionate about sales methodologies and sales and go-to-market execution. I'm really excited about the conversation. Thank so you. thanks for inviting me. Uh, in terms of how I got into sales, um, it depends if you classify recruitment as sales. Um, and if you do, the way I got into it was um, my dad said to me at, at the end of university, he said, right, you can't go on a gap year unless you've secured a job. Okay. And I was like, I was like, okay, fair enough. So I went, um, I graduated in 2009 when the financial crisis hit. So getting a job wasn't as easy as I thought it might be. So I went around all of the, you know, graduate programs and all of that. And, uh, I ended up interviewing at, um, Ernst and Young and KPMG and Deloitte. Um, and an accountant is the last thing that I am, but I needed to get <laughs> the box, right? I need to go, right. I need to go. I want to go travel. So. Uh, I walked in there and I ended up getting only 25% on the accountancy exam. And they would never hire anybody that uh, gets 25% on the accountancy exam. So they invited me back in though, because they were intrigued. Well, only one of them invited me back in and that was Ernst and Young. And so Jason, we really liked you in the interview, but we were really um, surprised that you didn't do so well on the test. So we just wanted to have a conversation with you to see if you, what's going on. And I said to them, I said, well, you know what? I bet that you have lots of people in this business that can do the numbers extremely well. And I bet there's no shortage of those in Ernst & Young. And I'm sure you have people in the 80% and above that do this all the time, no problem at all. But I bet the thing you don't have are people that can understand how to interpret those numbers and create stories that convince customers how to change and what they need to do in order to improve their businesses in order to make a difference where it matters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I could be helpful because I might not have the uh, aptitude around the accounting and the financials, but that's only half the battle. I'm sure you don't win customers by just producing perfect audit results. Right. I'm sure you win them by being a brilliant um, engagement uh, person. And they went, okay. And they, they gave me the job based on that pitch. And I said, fabulous. And um, I called them back and I said, oh, one catch. I have to defer entry for a year because I want to go travel. And they went, mm, okay, they reluctantly agreed. So anyway, I'm getting to your question, but I just thought this backstory would be curious. Yeah. I went away to Nepal and I, and I lived there for a year, um, traveling and stuff and having wow. a good time. And the day I got back, I called the Bernstein Young three weeks before I was due to start and I said, I'm really sorry. You've got the wrong guy. I really appreciated you deferring entry, but, um, I'm not an accountant and I, and I don't want to join Ernstine Young. And they were like, they were like, so I took my dad's box of the criteria, but I never wanted to be accountant on my sales pitch was just to get the job. Right. And instead I joined a recruitment business. And that was how I fell into getting on the phone. I love it. I love it. I, I <laughs> that's brilliant. Brilliant. So can you, can you actually, cause you know, in our world, you, you know, a lot of people in those shoes would have put on their, you know, on their LinkedIn profile, you know, Ian Y alumni. Because, you know, I know you didn't start, but you could have put it on there. You know, that's. <laughs> okay. No, and then... I, yeah, I'm more proud of the fact that I um, didn't want to, didn't go and do something that I didn't think uh, was right for me. And I, I, could I, have, I could have had an Ernst and Young 
you know, um, you know, graduate program contract, or I could have had what was an eighteen thousand pound base salary in recruitment firm in London, uh, where I felt like I, you know, could go and make something happen. Yeah. I love that. I think our industry is starting to catch on to this now. I've seen a lot of things this this year in particular to support this. But for me, for a long time, my secret, pun not intended, recruitment channel was recruiters. I have, if I look back to some of the greatest, my greatest ever hires, I think if I think about all, like the at least 90% of them, the ones that make it into the top 10 of my greatest hires were were at some point recruiters probably the start of what we would call their sales career. And yeah, and I, I think people are starting to catch on to this now, but um, you know, you're a, you're a great example of that with, with the career you've had. And how long were you, how long were you doing recruitment for? Ah, so I did it for 11 months and okay. I, I was, I think it was lucky that, uh, lucky and um, good timing, whatever, where a person I worked on the desk with left and joined Gartner ah, uh, at six months in. And, um, she, I was, it's Valerie, um, Bucker. Um, she works at Box and, uh, she's had an amazing career in, um, software sales. Um, but she, um, sent me a Facebook message. She didn't want to do it on LinkedIn because she, um, was worried about it getting caught because recruiters spend all their time on LinkedIn. And I didn't see it for a few months, but oh. she basically sent me a message saying, Hey, I heard you on the phone. Um, you were really good on the phone. Why don't you come to Gartner and learn the fundamentals of, of sales? And I got this Facebook message months later and I went, whoa, that's amazing. This is, could be amazing. So I emailed her, uh, Facebook message her back and she referred me into Gartner, um, to go and have, um, an interview. Um, and that's how it, that's how I got in and out of it. Right. And that, that's a, I mean, that, that's a great place to start your officially starting your sales career. I know, you know, we've talked about recruitment having, you know, direct parallels there but that's a that's a great place to start how did that go how did you find it did did you was was it was there a learning curve or did you find it a natural uh process what was it like uh it was a huge learning curve um a huge learning curve because i think i was like um i had loads of confidence but very little um competence at the time right so <laughs> i was like you know really that's huge huge self-belief but didn't really know what I was doing and had very little idea about technology. So, um, I, the learning curve was the first six months, I didn't sell anything. Um, so I joined in August. I didn't sell anything for the remainder of the financial year and the financial year reset at the start of the calendar year. Um, I started to make progress there. Um, and then in that year, I did manage to do, uh, what they call an Eagle award, which is like, top 1% of people. And I did that every single year that I was there then. Um, and I don't know why it necessarily clicked. Maybe we could discuss it. But um, first six months, nothing. And then it clicked. And then it was sort of high achievement thereafter. Interesting. And and it's uh, this this thing about clicking, I don't know about you, or, you know, people listening along. But for me, I always felt like I was, uh, whether I was an individual contributor or whether I was a leader, I was always waiting for it to click. Like that was always the thing I, I thought that would happen, that I would just wake up one day and go, yep, we're in, we're in the groove now. And even when, even when the performances were there and things were sort of running well, that the definition of what the click would be 
always seemed to sort of move further away or like it seemed like it was always equidistant away. Um, and, and that was always something that I never really felt comfortable with, even, even though, even if I could have defined at, you know, at that, a, a, a year previous, what would it clicking look like a year later? If I'd hit that exact criteria, I would not feel like it had clicked. Would, so when you say it clicked, if I had asked you at the moment, Angana, has it clicked where you were, you know, top 1% performer, would you have felt like that? Or would you still, would you have felt that you still had a lot more to do? Ah, so at the time when I would have recognized at the time that it was clicking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think yes, because, um, I was, um, I, you know, with, with, with each, um, small success, confidence builds and swagger builds. And that then starts to build up what they call flow, right? And when you're in your flow, more success starts to come. And as long as you remain, um, consciously competent of the things that you're doing well every day that are driving that success, then you won't, you won't, you shouldn't fall off, right? The yes. risk is if you're not conscious of what it is that you're doing, it will probably just be fluke or it might end up doing this where you'll get some good success for a while, but it won't remain consistent. So the secret, as I teach people here in my new role, is to make sure they're working out what it is that's happening, that's making it work. Because if they don't cement it as learning, then they're not going to be able to replicate it and continue it. I love that. I love that. And and that that's awesome. And I think one of the things that we always see in our in our, our industry of sales, which is I always say is like a performance industry, just like a sport, is that um when you when you are performing, and in our world that's you know closing deals, um, then you carry this confidence with you, which therefore leads to you um closing more. And I think that the reason for that is one of the elements to that is that if you are performing, you carry a confidence and then that confidence emanates to the customers who think, wow, this this person selling this product really believes in it. They're almost assuming I'm going to buy from them. So they, they it must be great because they you have such confidence that I'm going to buy it. And that is, I think, one aspect. But I also, there's this lovely um uh, quotes, and I, I'm not going to get it right, but it's from Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, probably one of the greatest sports coaches of all time. Uh, he, and he, he talks about uh, strikers in, in football. And he says that when they are scoring and they're on form, they think they're never going to stop scoring. And then by contrast, when they're not scoring, they think they'll never score again. And I yes. think like what you're talking about there is brilliant because you're talking about taking that, um, let's carry on the analogy, the footballer that's scoring and then figuring out what is it about their game that's making them score and, and, and really identifying that and, and making them aware of it so they can continue to do those things and not get into that rut, which we, yeah, I think we've all had in our career where we've been high performer, fall into a rut. Um, and you know, sometimes what we need to get out of that rut is just to do the things we were doing before. I, I 100% agree. So it's even like, I think in basketball, they call it hot hand. Like okay. where they, they feel like they won't stop scoring, uh, oh, or even onto the contrary, gamblers have it where they w- think they won't stop losing or they won't stop winning if they're on a run. Um, the, the thing about those examples is what the gambler is doesn't realize is every every um, bet is based on luck, so it's it's no the next bet has no correlation to the last bet, right? And it's the same in um, shooting a goal. There's no correlation between the, the last score and the next score. 
but the, unless you consciously understand what it is from a skill perspective that's equaling that um, that win or that that um, that you know positive result. So it's the same true in our performance sport and sport in sales. If you close a deal and it all goes perfectly well, but you didn't work out what happened or the process you followed was just based on gut feel, you might feel that the next deal is going to happen just the same way, but it could equally happen the exact opposite way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so when you're, when you're working with your team to kind of like nail these things down to sort of identify them and kind of almost, you almost want to, um, build them into your sort of the, the, your cadence, your rhythm as a salesperson of, of doing yeah. these things that should become best practice, I suppose. What, how do you, how do you identify those for your team? So it's, it's actually a huge, uh, topic of our leadership team right now, because obviously we're ramping a lot of new people into our business and we're doing it remotely. Um, we have a responsibility to these people to make sure that they get better and they become great. And they came here most of the time to learn and to get better. So we have to hold up our end of the bargain, right? And we have to deliver on that. So the leadership's question then is, well, how do we do that? How do we make sure that that actually happens in practice at all levels of leadership? So we put a huge amount of thought into it from the onboarding of somebody to their first 30 days. We have leading indicators about management involvement in certain elements of their process. We have um, best practice around prep meetings and debrief meetings which meetings that leadership should attend, champions that leadership should own, difficult conversations that should be fronted by leadership versus the RSM, all of these elements that make sure that we're leading from the front and teaching and showing so that we can cement learning with that individual and then almost go through the process, which can be a bit awkward, of like, hey, um, um, did you see what I did in that meeting? Can you just talk me through what you observed? What did you... Did you notice the way that I handled that objection? And what did you see that you thought was interesting? Because we're trying to make sure that they are conscious of the things that they can see so that they can then know that that's what mattered in that meeting versus, oh, that was a great meeting. I'm not sure what you did there. It was magic. Um, versus I can see exactly what you did there wasn't magic. It was just applying a formula that you know works and doing it every time. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And it, it, it's so much... You know, I, people who listen to this podcast will know I do this a lot, but I, I relate our industry of sales so much to sport. And if you think about what you're talking about there, you're basically reviewing the tape, which we get to do much better nowadays in the remote world with, with technologies that can support, you know, recording meetings and playing things back and obviously live coaching in them, which is really, really cool. But that's effectively, that's effectively what you're talking about doing there. You as a, as a, in, in, in almost like a role of a coach. You're, you're playing back the game video, the match video, and, and you're, you're pointing out things. And that, oh, that, I mean, that is, that is, if you think about the, um, the outcomes that can come from that, the positive outcomes that can come from that, that is brilliant, not just for the individual that you're coaching. And, and this, I think, comes back to having that kind of open collaborative culture, but the idea of, you know, elevating someone that's done something really, really good in a meeting and then sharing it with the team, not only because it elevates their, um, you know, them, them for doing something good and, and, and shines positive light on them, but also the rest of the team benefits from it as well. So I think that's like, and I love what you said there about, you know, you almost sort of feel like you, with these people that you've brought in, you know, who, who are very high potential, I imagine looking at the kind of caliber of people I see you're hiring, very high potential people, and you're kind of committing to delivering on your promise to them. Yes. That's really cool, man. I really, really like that. 
we are, um, and just for the record, we are held to really high accountability on that. The, the default is if we hired them and they fulfilled our hiring criteria, then, and they're not successful, either we didn't do a very good job assessing the hiring criteria, which shouldn't happen with all of the layers of assessment, or the leadership hasn't done its job in upskilling that person because they came here for the right reasons. We thought they had all the right DNA. It was validated by several layers of leadership. So the only thing that could have gone wrong is we didn't invest the right attention in making them better. And now the time lag is starting to create a will issue because they were like, high will, high will, high will, not learning, not learning, not having success, will is dropping, now starting to feel a bit disillusioned. And that's a very hard place then to pick someone up and resell them on the opportunity and get them recommitted to something when the will is so much lower. Yeah, yeah. And and something that I've always noticed, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is the, for me, the very, very best salespeople I've ever worked with, the most elite salespeople are always the very, very first to put their hands up to say when they need help or when they are looking at a bad quarter or you know they've got a deal that they think that, that they're going to qualify out of. They are always the very, very first to say that. And, and the... the the, if you think by contrast to those that um, don't feel comfortable to do that, in the scenario you talked about there where someone starts to, 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 to not perform as you want them to, they're not hitting the numbers you want them to, if they're not the first person that can feel that they can put their hand up straight away and say, hey, like, I, I don't see this, I don't see myself hitting the numbers I need to hit, I don't see myself delivering the performance I know I'm capable of what you hired me to do, like, that is a that is a culture and a scenario where you're going to solve that issue much much quicker with that person, as you just said, by by the, the the process you go through a very thorough hiring process, very you know very experienced process, and so that is an interesting thing for me. Is like how do we get um, how do we get uh, people who are maybe uh, uh, less experienced in their career in sales terms to mm-hmm. have the the attitude. Uh, of those most elite salespeople who are the very, very first to put their hands up to say they need help. They're, they're the ones that, in theory, should need the least help because they're the most experienced, high high talent, but they are the most comfortable putting their hands up. How do we um, bridge that gap where those who are uh, less experienced but high potential can feel like they can just put their hands up and be vulnerable? Well, I mean, maybe a contrarian point of view there is I actually find that um, so one of the hiring types we look at is coachability in in like like lots of great companies do, and I find that the often younger, often less experienced, often more high potential people are the most open to change. Right. They're the most open to go and say, "I am a blank canvas. I want to be just like you, because I idolize what you have become, and I want to do exactly that, and I believe in it, and I believe in you." Teach me everything you know, and I'm not going to come in with any bad habits, any preconceived ideas about me knowing best, no ego, because I'm here to learn. Those people actually end up having a much steeper um, learning curve and and progression uh, because of that just mad coachability that they have versus, to the contrary, is some of the more experienced people go, well, I think I know what Mm -hmm. I'm doing, and maybe I have got a series of bad habits, good habits, mixture of the two. Um, maybe I do have a bit of an ego. Maybe I have quite rightly have a bit of swagger because I've got a track record of success. So you're going to have to do a much better job convincing me that what you have to say is worthy of my attention and my time. So the learning curve can be a bit more like 
get more like this. Yeah. Or like, oh, I'm bored. I won't take that on board. I won't take that on board. I won't take that on board. I love um, that. So there's a bit different sometimes, I find. But, but but the really cool thing about what you just identified there is it's actually probably not relative to the experience level. It's, it's relative to the attribute of how coachable the person is. And so yes. you can, if you maintain that coachability, if that's just your personality and it's not, it's not a trait that's related to the level of experience you have. So for example, if I am a, um, a, 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 a salesperson early in my career and I'm talking to you as someone that's got, you know, a, a very, very strong track record in, at great companies, then I'm going to be naturally looking up to you. But whether I have, a, and, and therefore, I'm super coachable in your eyes, but am I coachable to my peer who is six months ahead of me, a year ahead of me? And, and that I think is a linear process that may actually continue on through because that's almost like a, a real deeply grained coachability. So if I therefore become that two, three decade experience of, of, of top level sales experience and, um, am I still coachable or, or does it, does, or does it reduce off? Um, a little bit because I, I, I see everyone else around me and I, I, I think that I, I, I've learned what they have to offer me. I actually like what you've done there. You, you're, you're decoupling the two consistently up regardless of experience. But so I find that sometimes experience makes this less as experience goes up, coachability becomes less. I think so you're saying that, um, it's so important therefore to keep coachability as high as possible and remain very conscious of that no matter what level you're at. Because otherwise, what will happen is you've got, you'll just keep doing this all the way to the bottom, where you feel yeah. like I know yeah. everything because I'm experienced, but I'm not open to learning. So it, this goes to the bottom and this goes to the top. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to draw a parallel with sports people. And if you look at the, the top sports people, the ones that are sort of famous, you know, the, the ones that are famous for kind of, you know, their, their ethic, uh, their, their work ethic, they are the ones that, that the, their coaches would say are the ones that stay late after training, that carry on. You know, you look at David Beckham, probably in his prime, the best free kick taker in the world. But he was probably the, the the person that was taking the most practice free kicks in the world as well. Um, and he well, probably- I, I heard like, um, I, I watched some uh, videos of Kobe Bryant and um, Ronaldo and Kobe Bryant is an excellent example of that, right? So I heard that famous story that, you know, uh, I don't know, one of his peers said, right, I'm going to be the first at practice. And in order for him to be first to practice, he needed to be down at breakfast by X time or whatever. And by the time he got to breakfast, he saw Kobe there and he thought to himself, Oh, great. I'm there with Kobe. Um, he's there too. But what he, and then he, then he recognized that Kobe was sweating and he thought, and he thought, uh, Oh, he's already worked out. And now he's so, and that like just made him blew his mind because he was like the best player in the world. I thought I was getting up extra early, but he's already trained. Yeah. Uh, and I, and that just like reset his expectation on what greatness is really all about and what's required. I love that. That's such a, can you imagine? Can you imagine that being that like, yes, like I'm going to be first there and you get downstairs and, and Kobe's there and you're like, well, at least, you know, at least I'm only second to Kobe. And then you realize he's already done a workout. <laughs> Or like Ronaldo, period, like he always then after practice used to go to those, there was four football pitches to the side and he would do his, he had to go up and down each one and do this drill all across all four pitches. And, um, you have this like, and, and I think it's, you're, you're, this is a really interesting point because, um, like take me, I'm going through it a bit of it myself, actually. So I took on this new role, um, of second line leadership uh, at the start of the new fiscal year, which is August. 
And I think I fell into unconscious incompetence in the new role where I came off the back of such a great first-line management career where I thought, well, well, I know what I'm doing as a first-line and all I've got to do is teach other people to do it. So I know that job so well, so surely I'm going to be able to teach people to do it because I've just done it so successfully. Like logic sort of adds up, fine. But what it's turned out is it's turned out to be such a different type of job in terms of, you know, it's way more um looking at themes and metrics and and data points that are more indications of where problems might be, creating enablement around those that are much more broader and scalable, thinking about how people are feeling as a culture, all this sort of stuff that really wasn't relevant when you were so deal orientated right. as a first name right. manager. And I I've gone through a few light bulb moments only in the last month or two where I thought, ah, actually I now realizing that I was unconsciously incompetent in my new role um, and I was almost the person with experience and not being coachable. But some poor, you know, experiences have led me to believe that, ah, like this needs to dial up again. And it gives you a really stark reminder that, like, oh, you haven't got it figured out. That, you know, and, and mistakes or problems are, are really good um, reminders of that. You know what I mean? I do, and I think that's actually something that's really interesting. That I think when I when I look at your um, when I look at your career, and I, I, I you know listening to some of the the, the the things you've spoken about before, I think there's a correlation here. I might be making it loosely, and I'd love to hear you think I'm onto something here. But you, you stepping into the role you mentioned, um, you it's almost like you don't know what you don't know, kind of thing. And so that that gap between what you what you had to sort of step up to achieve because you weren't aware of it, you couldn't be coachable on it. There's there's that you can't be coachable for what you don't know. And so you step in and actually you, you it's interesting that you almost saw it as a um as you being um, you sort of took that in the way you described it or how I heard it was you were saying, you know, I, I I perhaps went into this role not being coachable. But actually the fact that you reflected and quickly realized that there was a gap and then you know you've you've kind of set your expectations of your your yourself higher and now obviously you're you're you know you're you're working on meeting those expectations is actually a coachable trait the the uncoachable trait in that scenario would have been to go in and not see the gaps and not see the opportunity for you to to sort of learn more because you're being exposed to new things that you hadn't been exposed to in your previous role so i think that's really interesting and i think that points back to something that that really stood out for me, which was that where you were saying, you know, you're a top performer at a great company like Ghana. You know, you said the top one percent. I think at one point you might have even been top globally as well. Yeah. What? 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 Why? Why would you? Why on earth? To throw a big question out there, why on earth would you not be one of these people that stays the Ghana for their entire career? Well, I think it's think it's like um, um, so. I've spoken about this before, but I think it's like, take it to a deeper level. Um, have you ever been in environments where you don't, I mean, this might sound kind of rude, but, uh, and it is kind of rude, but I don't mean any disrespect to Gartner. They're an amazing company, but I just felt like whenever I looked around, there wasn't somebody there that I really admired and wanted to be like so much. So when you're faced with that, the prospect of growing up in that company is almost, it can't happen because no matter who you meet at any level, you're like, hmm, 
I don't, I don't see myself being like you or wanting to have a desire to be like you. Or if I'm in your shoes talking to someone like me 20 years on and I'm, and I'm, and I'm having the conversation that you're having with me, I don't think I'll feel very fulfilled. And that like creates this, uh, like hurts you and it makes you feel like I've got to leave. I've got to just, I've got to get out of here. It's it's like, like, it's like this like urgency that I've got to, you know, when, when situations that like that fight or flight or that, uh, something that's wrong in your life that you run from, it, it becomes quite immediate and quite urgent. That you're like, right, I've made my decision. And now all of the process that is left is to act on that decision. You've already decided that you need to go. So all that happens now is how much urgency you can apply to, to leaving. Right. Um, and, I, and that's what I did. Yeah. And I think, I think what, you know, again, if I can sort of, to take it like an abstract view of what you're talking about there is you know you 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 met it yourself you kind of came in um to Gartner and it was a steep learning curve so it wasn't like you'd sort of landed as this person that kind of already knew what you were doing in that context you've you've kind of leveled up and you you've kind of realized your 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 and this is something I don't think we talk about in our industry enough but you you were you were peaking on your own um, potential that you could reach inside of Gartner. And I think in sales in particular, we constantly compare ourselves to others around us, which is okay. I'm not, I'm not knocking that as something to do. We, we compare ourselves as an AE to another AE in our team or to another AE in our network or in another region. And, and we, we draw like parallels between ourselves and our performance and where we are compared to other people. And we may look at peers we used to work with, um, maybe at the start of their career and where they are and you compare yourself and, and that will make you feel like whether you're meeting your potential or not which is fine to some degree, but I also think something we don't talk about enough is how we in, have an innate understanding of what our own potential is. And and what we should be measuring ourselves against is whether we're meeting our full potential. And I, I describe this as being like something that um, I felt before, actually, funnily enough, not to sort of make it about medic, but before I learned medic, I would always describe myself as being like a B player version of myself. Forget about anyone else. I was just like B player and I wasn't it was like you know to use another sports analogy it was like I was only I, I could use my left foot as well but I was only using my right foot and then somebody told me I can use my left foot and all of a sudden it ups my game and I think that you know sometimes what I see and it's in particular in, in like very high um high potential people high talented people in our industry they just can't set they can't settle and, you know, that's why people carry on climbing, you know, you know, we, it's, it's a well-known fact in our industry, you know, the, the, the people, the sales leaders aren't necessarily the most highest paid and quite, quite often contrary to that. It's, 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 uh, it's not a role that people take to, to often earn, increase their earnings. And so we often, what I see is people follow up on, um, you know, going into more senior roles, whether that be senior AE, enterprise AE, et cetera, or going into leadership because you're striving, you're constantly striving to meet your own potential. And what you described there in Ghana sounded to me exactly like you were like, there's like this glass ceiling you were hitting inside of Ghana where you could see the full potential of yourself, but you, you couldn't get past it inside of Ghana. So if that was, first off, like I said a lot there, but is, is, does that, does that re- like resonate? And if so, like, how do you take that kind of feeling and 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 do a positive with it? Well, I, I, uh, very interesting, and uh, I think that's uh, I I really enjoyed hearing that out. Actually, I think um, I it's funny you say it's funny you talk about achieving your full potential because someone once asked me recently, uh, "What is your sense of purpose?" or like, "What is your 
what is your um what what makes you motivated and i i made i i asked I, I said a number of things but one of the things i said was this um almost uncomfortable desire to achieve my full potential um and it was because like have you ever felt um at, well, like it's it's a funny thing my partner uh lucy she um when she like um, chose me to be her husband or, you know, to partner with me in her life. Um, she always told me that she thought I could achieve anything I wanted to do. She was like a cheerleader sort of person. And um, achieving my full potential is not only about me, it's for like, it's kind of like for her as well. It's like a weird thing that if I if I chicken out or I don't do it, I'm kind of neg, neg- uh, what do you call it? Like negging on the promise that she thought was always there for, for us and for, for me. Yeah. And it's all because I'm falling short of expectations. And that really bothers me to fall short of someone's expectations of me. And it's like a very uncomfortable feeling, like to fall short of what you thought I could be. Right. And you know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. You know, like I thought you could be X. But because you didn't have the character or the intelligence or the coachability or the drive or the center or the, or the discipline, you fell short. And that's an, that's a horrible feeling to have recognized, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think what you're, what, what I, what it sounds like you're saying there is like Lucy's like your accountability partner. I mean, she's obviously much more than that, but she's your accountability partner. She becomes an outlet for you to, to make it more than just your own accountability to yourself which therefore you know subconsciously or consciously drives you forward more towards your goal which is always meeting your potential you always want to meet your potential because otherwise you talked about it how you described your your situation in Ghana it was like this horrible weight on your shoulders where you felt like you basically probably I'm I'm putting words in your mouth now but you because I can I can relate you feel like you're not meeting your full potential and um, you owe that to yourself because that's just how you're wired. You can't help that. You can't. You can't stop that. You can't. You know, train yourself out of that because you're always aiming for that next thing. Um, and so, what Lucy becomes is your accountability partner in that. That just makes it a little bit more like a team towards a goal, which is a great thing to have. That's that's almost yeah. like a big part of the partnership. Two, two, uh, I agree with you. Two, two things on that. It's not. It, it doesn't limit itself actually to professional stuff it actually if you have an accountability partner they they should be testing you on becoming the best person that you could possibly be and they call you out on when they feel like you're not meeting that bar of expectation with you or with them and that makes you continually evolve and live in a culture with your relationship with somebody of constant improvement and involvement as you as people as parents as individuals as financial planners as professionals as uh, whatever it is husbands wives role models um you you continually evaluate your own potential in all of those areas and it's why i think i can now start to relate with people that you know like not it might sound funny and i don't mean it how it comes across but let's see someone's at the oscars and they're like saying you always hear the same speech i would like to thank my partner for everything that they've done now that always to me used to sound cliche that they were, they were simply thanking them because, well, you've got to thank them. But it's actually because that person probably held them to account on everything that they achieved in their life. And that person had such a motivation or a sense of purpose that was attached to that person 
feeling good about them and their expectations that they're achieving their full potential in their eyes. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And and that that is it. And it's it's that yeah, it's that um we, we I think people listening to this will, will resonate, you know, whether it's their, you know, a common one is obviously a partner uh in, in terms of a, a a relationship, but also parents as well, you know, yeah. accountability partners, because they are your first, probably your first cheerleaders in many cases. Um, yes. people that are kind of see your full potential, maybe even more. You know, if I think about my mum, my mum, my mum, like almost a catchphrase with my mum is that I've missed my, voc- my vocation in life and I could be doing anything. I could be like, you know, giving some, one of my kids a really bad haircut in lockdown. Um, and my mum would see it and goes, Oh, it's brilliant. You've missed your vacation in life. You should have been a barber. And, and, yeah. and of course, so, you know, that, that's something there and that, that's interesting. So what's, um, what did you do? You, 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 you were a gardener, you were, you know, crushing it but you wanted you 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 knew you could you you knew you could take yourself further so what did you do how did you how did you fix that situation uh so i think i think i've been blessed with like good um some good fortune and some good like things that happened for example like what happened was um i got introduced to steve mccloskey at that dynamics and it was the first meeting that i had once i'd made the decision to leave a gardener, so that's a pretty great meeting to get right and a pretty great company uh, of excellence. Um, so that's a bit of good fortune because I didn't go and create an amazing plan and create a little list of companies. And I just, you know, got the good fortune of meeting someone exceptional. And um, to to paint the contrast of, you know, you asked me why I wanted to leave. Well, it was because of the admiration and looking at people that I didn't necessarily want to be. As soon as I met Steve, he made me feel uncomfortable. It. And it made me feel um, out of my depth and a bit of a fraud and a bit of like, you know, you could see through me. You know, I arrived in a really sharp suit as if I'd made it. Um, I walked in very casual. Uh, I didn't even bring out a notepad. I was a bit like, you know, let's have a conversation sort of like, uh, you know, peer to peer. And... Um, I think he gave me like the benefit of the doubt, really. He was a bit like, oh, I've seen a lot of you types of kids, high potential, smart, you know, um, got a lot of guts, but I know exactly where you're at in your development. And he didn't choose to use that opportunity to like tear me apart, but he slowly but surely helped me realize how out of my depth I was through questioning and through just cues and saying, so, you know, I'm putting all the onus on me to control the meeting, but was being unable to do so. And him watching how I was floundering and not being able to find a route through. And he was like, okay, so you see what's happening here. You see why, you know, the skills that you're not demonstrating and how I can help you. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that was another realization. Like, again, the urgency It was no longer about deciding I needed to work for Steve. That had been decided. And I didn't care about the company. I didn't care about the prospects of the business. I didn't care about... Um, how well it was doing. I didn't look at the, didn't care about any of that. I just met an individual I thought I could learn a lot more from than I was learning today. So none of it, none, nothing else mattered. It was just like, don't care about it. I trust you because you're demonstrating in this moment that I could learn a hell of a lot from you. And that's, that's the only reason I'm changing what I'm doing. So bring it on. Do you know what's so funny and why I was smiling so much when you were telling me about that is that Steve was doing was implicating you in the pain of your situation 
and he eradicated yeah, yeah. anything else. If you think about that from a sales context, which is effectively what he had done, and I'm sure if we spoke to Steve, he would probably remember, as we all do when we remember those people that we hired that went on to, you know, to, to be hugely successful. I'm sure he remembers. And I think probably what he was doing at that point was selling to you. That's what he would describe. He's trying to sell you in, even though he's only still qualified. He's part of the process. He's qualifying whether you actually got the coachability, as, as is the case in this this scenario where you probably have the raw talent, but not the, the the frameworks. And so he was, he was, he had probably spotted in you that you were top performer at Garner, and he knew why you were there. And he's making you feel like there's nothing else in this world that matters more than you getting this job because that's the only that's the only thing that's going to help you reach your potential, and. What you describe, I could feel it. I could feel it as you were talking about it, even though it was what, like, I don't know, seven, eight years yeah. ago, something like that now. You could feel the, the, I'm sure people listening along would feel that too, like the, the pain you were in, right? And you're just telling the story. You, you know, the pain you must actually have been in that moment of seeing your potential being made or your potential there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually the, I, there was two things I was feeling. One was, oh my God, I can't let this slip away. Right. Oh my God. Um, I need to convince him that I'm good enough for this job because if to the, the potential point, if I don't make it, if I don't feel like I can get in here, uh, my life is over. I'm devastated. It, it means everything's going to fall apart. So I had that single mindedness that, uh, I have to do everything I could to get this job. Um, and the second thing I felt was, uh, wow, how, um, how, what a contrast to the way I walked in to the way I'm walking out of this meeting. I walked in with swagger. I'm walking out with humility. Right. And um, I hadn't felt that sort of feeling in quite some time. And it was a good uh, reset, like the one I just described for you in my new role. You get these resets of hum- humbleness where you're like, oh, God, it's, uh, yeah, I, I really, you know, I, I didn't recognize that in myself. And I now need to choose to embrace it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like to look at it in the mirror, but I'm up for it because I have to achieve my full potential. So let's let's get on the road. Let's get back on the horse and start riding. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm still smiling at the idea. You know, you just describing that and just how much uh, how much you you could you could imagine. You know, if you could ever get your customer in the same situation, that same moment of pain that you were in about the prospect of buying your solution. Then that is that is what drives us. You said it yourself, actually, without me even prompting. You know, we weren't even talking in a sales context, but about urgency. You were like urgently wanting to to, to work for AppD at that moment. And the interesting thing as well, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think AppD was was the company we know it as, or what what, what it came to be known as at that point. It was. Am I right no, in no, saying no. it was it was before it was way pre acquisition, but even that sort of period before acquisition where. It, you know, AppD was on everyone's lips as, as being the, the the hottest shop in town. So you were, you were, yeah, you probably walked in there with a bit of swag just because it was probably one of many opportunities you were probably considering that moment and how quickly that turned. Well, I, oh, two things. To be honest with you, I didn't, uh, as soon as I met Steve, I didn't look at anything else to join. I, I was so single-minded. It's a bit naive maybe and a bit like, um, I don't know what someone might think about that. It's not particularly smart, but I did all that I cared about was, um, working for this person. And, um, with each person that I then met in the process, that was just further validated that like, like the, Oh my God, the, Oh my God sort of situation. And, um, yeah. and, um, 
I didn't need to hear much more. I was like, the way you've made me feel innately makes me understand how I, I, I almost, I, I understood it so deeply about what this person was doing to me that I could see it. I could see what good looked like. And I was like, I know that that is what great looks like. So I don't need to see anything else because I know I can see it. And, um, and I just need to get that as fast as possible. Right. So you get the job and I know it wasn't an easy process. You probably had to meet Jeremy as well. Probably had to go through loads more implications of pain in those interviews. And, and, and yeah, I think that those, those sort of, I think those sort of, uh, that process is well, well documented. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you've gone from being a top performer in Ghana you've gone to you know what is at the moment probably one of the hottest beds of talent at the time if not the hottest beds yeah. of talent a place to be um you've you, you've arrived you're probably a bit more humble on upon arrival after going through the interview process yeah. um and Ghana is famous for having a really good you know sales school you know yeah. you know yeah. so they, yeah. they teach you the fundamentals really well how what kind of what was it like landing in Abdi and and trying to then pick up the playbook it was like, um, um, it was, uh, the word that comes to mind, it was like, it was like a jungle. It was like, there was, and everyone was like a silverback gorilla. Like the, 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 you know, the alpha males, the, the, you know, the, the meticulousness of the way they work people out, the, 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 you know, the sharpness of everybody in the way that they interact and the way they talk to you and the way they qualify and the way they act and the, the attitude that just, you know, sort of emulates around the whole office. Everyone felt like they were the, in the greatest show in town. And if anyone didn't know it yet, they were about to. That was the sort of attitude that everyone walked around with. And I was like this Gartner rep, a suited tie very much at the top of my button and, you know, very sort of formal selling of the school of, you know, the fundamentals, as you put it, was their great at to a sort of much more raw, um, business-like, um, attitude, whatever. And I said, I'll give you an example of this. I went to Steve one day. I said, um, Steve, uh, I've been asking, um, uh, Rich for the, this uh, PowerPoint presentation for a few days now. And, and he still hasn't sent it to me. I really do need it for, to like help me understand this retail use case. Um, can, can you ask him to like get it for me? Would you mind? And he was like, Jason, and this is why I use the jungle analogy because it's what he said to me. So Jason, you've just stepped into the jungle, all right? You've got to find a way to figure out how to get people to work for you and get people to do things that you want. Because if you can't do it here, you're never going to be able to do it with your customers. So Rich is testing you. He's like, he's seeing your new blood, your new in. You're not adding value to me. You're not thinking of champion building me. You're just asking for something from me and withdrawing from the relationship. So I'm teaching you a lesson about champion building. You just asking me for a deck that would benefit you that took me a year to build in a strategic deal and just handing it off to you. It felt, feels to me like a big withdrawal of value. You don't even know me and you haven't even added any value to me. So I think a very interesting test of like, that's the way they see the world, right? They see the world in this very, you know, um, binary sort of testing, like that attitude piece I was telling you about. So Steve just said, you've got to figure out how to go and get that deck. And it wasn't that he was being unempathetic or not a great leader. It was again like you're gonna have to figure this out, Jason, because you're this is your big learning curve. You're coming from 
everything being shiny and new and gritty and gotten a business card to the jungle. And you need to fucking figure it out, you know? You need to get here and make make your way. You know, find your way through here. You know? Yeah. And I've heard you talk about this before in terms of building champions in your career. And I really like that context because I think like champion is obviously, you know, a very, uh, something very dear to my heart, as you would expect. But I love that way you, you know, you talking about that rich chap there, you know, and, and, and I relate because I've been, I've been that person before where, you know, I've, I've put my blood, sweat and tears into building something of value for my, for my, you know, territory, my yeah. customers. And here's someone else just asking for him, well, what am I going to get? You know, what, what in, in, in a, you know, in the most rawest sense, I'm, I want to be number one. And so if I give you something that's made me, that's helping me towards being number one, then you're going to be a competitor to me. As much as I want you to win and I want my company to win, you know, there's all these dynamics. And so what's in it for me? And so, you know, that kind of, and that is, of course, uh, a vested interest is, is a clear criteria of, of champion, whatever champion is. What's, what was, what was, um, what was kind of the, the value that Rich was going to get from working with you? And, and, and I'd love to, how did you, how did you, did you get the deck? Did you, did you win him over? I, I actually did. I, I actually did. And I think though, um, the, the, I didn't learn champion building. It took me a long time to really learn about champion building, if I'm totally honest. I felt like um, I was always rushing to the outcome that was important to me versus really thinking about, um, you know, humility, um, like depositing value into a relationship. I was so urgent and so focused on my ambition and what was important to me that if you have that mindset in relationships, you you miss out all of that deposit and you, you don't go to that as your default of how to build relationships. So I'm, I made a series of bad first impressions on people because of that. Um, again, they didn't make it easy because of the culture and the attitude and the sharpness. But so it wasn't like, Oh, come on. We'll just forgive you for all of that. We'll make it easy. It wasn't that environment, right? Which is great because it made you, it made you grow. Um, and I think slowly but surely as I became more comfortable in myself, more confident in who I was and what I was about and more uh, vulnerable with what I didn't know and more conscious of that. I, you develop more of a humility and a, and an ability to engage. I say you were a champion. I wanted to build. I'd be like, look, um, in fact, even the way that we even started our relationship, I, you know, I just sent you something that I thought would be of interest to you that I thought that, Hey, you care about uh, medic. I thought you'd really like to see this piece that I wrote for my team that I think you would find interesting. And you were like, I do find that interesting. That is really interesting. And it wasn't like, hey, I want something from you. And uh, it just wasn't my default at all. And even if we didn't get anything going, that wouldn't matter either. It was just about, I want to share something that I thought would be of interest to you. And that was the, that's the default. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love it. And, and, and by the way, uh, it was brilliant. And we've talked about this and you, you, you're, you've said you're, you're happy for, for us to share this with the world. Cause I think it's pretty, I mean, everyone listen, even just, li- if you've just listened to this episode, you never heard any of the other episodes. I've already probably done about 17 analogies. So, you know, like, even if you're brand new to me, I'm missed an analogy. Um, and so I love an analogy, but what you, what you, what you sent me was one of the, if not the best medic analogies I've, I've heard, I think. Um, 
because it just makes it, it, it it's it's not just a like like for me that a good analogy is where someone goes okay i can see you know there's two parts there's, okay i can see the, the why that's an analogy but the the best analogy is the ones you can build upon and you kind of riff with the person you're like oh that bit fits that bit because that's kind of the definition of analogy i would love 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 you to to share your analogy with our dear audience well yeah it's it's Good timing, isn't it? Well, because it's so connected to champion it building, wasn't yeah. it? So I, um, I was basically in a situation, like for the benefit of the audience, where, um, and you don't know the backstory actually, where we were, I was doing a lot of um, deal clinics with people, like because I get involved and do, as part of the coaching, I have deal clinics with the region where people can drop in and out every week to bring me problems. And we call it like the doctor's clinics. Yeah, cool. Um, and I've been running it for a year and, and, I, and of relate, I started looking at them and noticing a pattern in the, in, um, uh, in the deals. And it was around champions, which is I felt like we were almost traveling through our sales process without a champion. And we were only starting to realize that we didn't have one when things started to go wrong later on on our journey. So I thought, what is this compared to? And I started like riffing it on the clinic. I was like, it's like, you know, we've, we've done the new business meeting, which is us driving on the slip road onto the motorway. And we're, we're on the motorway, which is our sales process. And we're just driving along, you know, kind of, you know, unconscious of where we're sort of going. We're looking at our sat nav and saying, go in this direction. We have no really idea of what's ahead of us. If there's traffic, if there's speed cameras, if there's police ahead, if there's going to be an issue, if there's road work, we don't know any of that. We're just trusting this. You know, map. I said, oh, you keep going. It's good. Oh, I've got my music on. I'm not really thinking about anything. I'm, I'm happy as Larry. But then, like, you start to realize, oh, seeing the distant red starting to appear on my map and things are starting to slow down on my, on my journey. And I started to draw a comparison to a sales process where I was like, you know, you reach these problems on the motorway is the same of deals where like, oh, the champion suddenly is in, um, returning my calls as as often as I'd like. Or that meeting that we're trying to get in the diary isn't happening as quickly as I would like it to. Or the planning for the proof of value seems to be taking a lot longer than I thought it would. And suddenly now, you know, people are talking about this other vendor that's involved that I thought we were all like sort of sewn up on the idea that we were the only game in town. And Suddenly I'm starting to sweat a bit and the deal is starting to slow down like our motorway analogy. And I was like, what does this feel like comparable to? And I was like, it's because in that deal analogy, you don't have a champion fighting for you on your behalf, guiding you and protecting you and warning you and helping you navigate through the challenges that you don't know about, that you don't know are happening in their company. So if you relate that to our analogy, it's like you're traveling solo and you don't have someone in your passenger seat who's traveled that journey before. And they're not saying, they're saying to you, hey, um, just so you know, up ahead is traffic always slows down because the road gets really narrow. So what I recommend you do is you get into this lane quickly and move now because if you leave it too late, you're going to end up in the traffic jam and slowing down. Like, oh, thanks, champion. I'm going to move into that lane now and I'm going to like avoid that slowing down of traffic. And the analogy there is that, that the, is, is that's the security, that, that's that, their company's security audit that takes three weeks, but your champion saying, Hey, like if you get in the back of the queue here, it's going to take you three weeks. Let me, let me set up a call with our head of security who, um, 
can we can do it live on the call there'll be a few questions that that you know and that that's what you're talking about there which yeah which is one of the one of the many many things about that analogy that 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 i loved and what what else what, there's so many isn't there like he could be telling you or she could be telling you that right so there's police cameras ahead which basically means in deal scenario we're going to get a big inspection on our deal we're going to be bringing it to other people and we will expect people to criticize how fast we're traveling or how good our deal is or how you know we shouldn't be doing this at this time so these are the things we need to prepare for so we need to slow down in our car we need to make sure we've got all of our indicators pointing in the right direction we need to be traveling at the right speed we need to make sure that we're driving with our seat belts on everything's in order because the police are going to be watching and inspecting our vehicle. The same in a deal. They're going to be looking at the why anything. They're going to be looking at the why Z scaler. They're going to be looking at the why now. They're going to be looking at your comparisons. You know, do we want to put this live in production right now? Because we're not all of these things. They're going to inspect your deal. But if you don't know that the police cameras are up ahead, right, you're not going to be forewarned because you don't have a chance. You're going to arrive and you're not going to have your seatbelt on. You are going to be traveling too fast. You are going to be in a position where you've just done a wrong move in your car. And you're like, oh, damn it, I've been caught. And that's everything down. Or you have to be pulled over and the deal stops entirely. Right. Or like as as can happen, you can plan things perfectly. You can have a brilliant champion who's talking you through the entire decision process, be on top of the paper process. But things sometimes, even with everything 10 out of 10, surprises happen. That police car does pull you over because you've got a light out on the back. But here's the good news. Your champion knows the police officer. So softens the fine softens the penalty makes the police officer go away and that you know that's why the analogy is just so so beautiful i know i I was like i was like the the way i ended it with the team i was like so if you're on if you ever find yourself on the slip road driving onto the motorway and you're traveling a few miles and you look to your left and there's no one in your passenger seat pull over right call your rd realize that you need to go and pick somebody up because you don't want to travel any further with all of the um, problems that might be, that might take place on your long journey, right? Full of potential issues. Don't travel any further until you have one. Yes. Yeah. And it comes back to that, you know, a very simple saying to finish a a fun, deep analogy of like uh, no champion, no deal, big champion, big deal. If you've, and I, 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 I think, you know, you, you, you talk, you'll see it with your deal clinics. I see it with, you know, when I do similar sort of conversations with companies and when I was doing the same sort of things, deal clinics, we used to, we used to do a sort of doctor theme to it as well. So I'm yeah. glad that that's like, uh, wasn't just me. Um, and it, same thing. You, you would, if you haven't got a champion, it's like, it's like you say, stop the car. You need to, yes, you, you, you can't go any further. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily stop the deal. But it should mean that that should become your top priority because I always say this. If you look at all the classic objections we face about competition doing a better job than we do in, in the eyes of the customer, about price, about priorities, all of these things, whatever the objection is, we all as experienced salespeople have tactics, strategies, um, manners of overcoming those objections. But all of those tactics and strategies are virtually useless without a champion. Because if we don't have the person who can take that um, object, uh, our, our way of overcoming that objection and t- put it into action, their side of, of, of the organization, then we're just talking up into thin air things that aren't going to be actions. So, you know, the chat, that's why I think, you know, 
um, you know, on this, I you know, generally always ask people, well, I, sh- I can't ask you now because I've sort of preempted it, but I always ask people what they think is the most important part of medic. And oh, I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to ask you to see, see, see what you come up with. Oh, so I, well, I, so I, I could probably, uh, I could probably be debated against what I'm going to say, but I have a point of view. Um, so, um, I would say that it's pain because, and it might strike you as being, uh, maybe the wrong answer. It might be the wrong answer, but I, my belief is that if you don't have pain that is absolutely real, let's just agree that it has to be a grade three wise, for example. If you don't have a great few words, a champion will never reveal themselves anyway. If you don't have something that is going to meaningfully matter to them, that you're going to change in their professional life. And that is born out of an initiative or a thing that needs to happen because they're not looking for friends. They're not looking for a drinking buddy. They're looking for someone to help them overcome something that they can't do on their own. Therefore, if champion is the route to the rest of medic, pain is the route to revealing the champion. So therefore, pain must be the thing that matters most above everything else, which is why we, why I coach people to view themselves in the early parts of the deal as detectives, as problem solvers, as consultant, uh, consultants of figuring out business issues that only we can solve and create cases around. Because if you take that to someone who's smart and ambitious, a champion, and you go, hey, check this out. I think we can do this. I think there's something in this initiative and how we can help and the savings and the potential value and how it will help your, with your professional win to get X, Y, and Z in your life. What do you think of doing this together? What do you think of working on this together? That would make that person interested and pay attention and want to spend time with you because you're adding value and you're, you've unlocked something there. You know what I mean? I, 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 I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And there's two things I want to dig into there. One, one is, is around the, 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 the pain champion sort of being the most popular answer to that question. The other is about the, the, we don't want our champions to be our friends. So we'll start with the, the pain thing. I have actually a theory because I, you articulated it much better than I do, but I absolutely agree with you. The pain is the most important because without pain, there's no gain, like no pain, no gain, no champion. And, and actually, if, you know, to link the next point, which is like, if you have a champion without a pain, are they really going to be a champion when you need them? Or are they just someone that's going to like your time, like the idea of working with your company? Cause they know that you're going to take them to Wimbledon, all that sort of stuff, which is part of, part of what we do. But you know, that's obviously not, shouldn't be the driving factor. And so my, my theory here though is, is to why, um, the most common answer to that question when I ask it is champion is this, is that generally speaking, and I don't mean any disservice to, to any other guests or anything like that, but generally speaking, um, people that I ask, they are looking at deals from a perspective of where there is already a deal there. So when they're, when they're looking at a deal and they're seeing these deals and forecast calls and all sort of stuff, they're saying, well, you know, that deal hasn't got a champion. That's, that's the most important thing you need to f- work on right now. And they are right. If there's a real deal, you know, like an, uh, a, 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 a valid opportunity, then yes, it's it, the most important thing is a champion. But you, to your point, you don't get that champion without there being a real pain. So the pain comes first and therefore is the most important because without the pain, you get like a faux champion or you just kind of get lucky and then they they figure out that later on that, that there's some pain there. So 
that is, yeah, I, I'm glad that finally somebody, somebody, um, I have somebody that, that uh, I, I can agree with on that point. And it's not to say that I don't think champion is important. Of course, it's, 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 it's critical when you have a real deal, but it's that first bit is, I think pain's more important. Second thing you said there, which I really liked, and I've heard you talk about it before is about not wanting our champions to be friends. And I think there's this common misconception where we have to, you know, I'm not going to get into the, like, do we need to be liked in sales thing? But the thing about our champions, um, having to really like us as being like a, a primary factor. I don't believe that at all. What, what's your what's your thoughts on that? No, I, yeah, no, I think um, I think it is especially. I think this problem is exacerbated in a remote digital world where we're moving to digital channels being a, a mode of how people are going to continue to build champions. Because I think it's all gotten a stat that by twenty twenty five, eighty percent of all sales communication will happen in digital channels. So if you take that forward, like to your point about relationship building, it's got to evolve because that would have been 80% the other way, you know, a couple of years ago, right? So so that if you don't take that data point and think that change has to happen, you're bonkers. So I think that um, more and more, if I take me myself as a buyer, the people that add value to me are people, or the people that become champions are people I think are just super smart that own a problem for me that I feel like are working on my behalf um, with connection to me and taking my input into something that is almost scaling myself to help me get marginal gains and lift in my business through acting like something that's helping me solve a problem that I don't actually feel equipped or time resource constrained to solve. But because I have you, I feel like I'm gaining someone that, from my team that can help me do something that I didn't think was possible on my own. You're adding value, you're adding insight, you're adding work, you're adding resource, you're adding, um, you're adding connection by bringing people into the conversation that need to be in it without me having to do that. You're making me feel credible enough to introduce you to my boss. So that's not a difficult conversation to do. So we're, we're going to be able to get sponsorship easy because you're brilliant. So, so all of those things just made me feel like um, I like that person for those reasons. Uh, if that person was not my cup of tea in terms of character or personality type, that's disconnected to all of that stuff. Right. right? Yeah. I, can even, I can even find their mannerisms a bit off-putting, but don't, wouldn't mind if all of those things were being delivered because it's, they're, if they're, as long as they're being authentic and they're being who they are and sincere, I don't care what they're like you know yeah and i actually i, I agree as well but I, I would actually put one layer on top of that we'd say in some instances in some instances not all but in some instances i think it's actually um a bad thing to have uh, a champion that i am very friendly with because i like them a lot and they i feel like they like me because i you know, I don't know, but I don't speak for everyone, but I think most people have their own friends, their own social circles outside of work. We're not going to work to find friends. We're not going to work to find best, you know, buddies. We're going to work for, you know, to, to achieve our goals. And so actually the, the idea of, um, the idea of getting into a situation where I feel like I can't hold, you know, the reason why I want a champion is because I, I want somebody who's going to help me towards, the goal of, of winning a customer. And for them, the goal is they'll have a, they'll have a vested interest as well. Cause whatever it is that they're getting from my solution is going to help them towards their goal as well. So we have like a mutual goal. And that's why I need a champion. And 
the problem that I see happen, I, and I can talk from my own personal experience as well here earlier in my career, where I had someone I really gelled with, like got on really well with, you know, texting and just talking about other things. And someone that I felt could be a good friend is I can't hold them to account when I need to, because I don't want to upset them as my friend. And I don't want to like, Put, like push them into action that I need them to do sometimes is which is not you know I can remember one example um and, and this funny thing about this is this person has actually gone on to become a good friend of mine so this is kind of a funny end to the story but at the time I remember this uh champion I had was beating me up on price we were like our solution was genuinely five or six times more than the competition but we had identified something in our decision criteria that was unique that had a whole use case and business value to it that our competitor didn't have so it was not a case of like well there's a disparity in price it was like well that's a different solution you're not comparing apples to apples but as much as that was an isolated usp in the decision criteria they had admitted and we had a business case backing up everything was you know locked up all the time you need to negotiate the price you need to reduce the price you and but which is one thing which is okay customers negotiating but the flip side to it was because you are 5x what your competitor is and i felt like i'd been saying politely because he was my, you know, because he wasn't my friend at this point, but he was someone that I liked and we'd been out for dinner and, you know, we'd, we'd hit it off as two people who have share mutual interest and views and stuff. And I felt like I, I was probably in hindsight too patient. And it got to the point where I ran out of patience. And I remember, and I'm sure you've done this, I'm sure people listening have done this, I, I made peace that I'd lost the deal. And, but I, but I knew that there was only one thing I had left to do to not lose it, which was just basically just call out my champion, say, look, I've, I've been through this. And I, not rude, but very firmly said, we've been through this. We cannot reduce our price relative to our competitor because it's for all the reasons I mentioned, it's not the same product. You're not comparing, you, you, don't, you can't even get, you can't even buy us a competitor solution based on the business case we've put together. So can we, and I basically just said, can we just stop this now? Cause I, I or just, we should just, conclude this project because it's it's not going to go anywhere and i remember that sort of you know silence you could hear a pin drop and i remember i remember thinking well that's that gone that's that deal gone i blew that one and then everything changed and then he was like okay well okay okay i understand what we do need to do something on the price i won't mention the competitor again and and, and he and he came round. And we'd got the deal done. It turned out to be a great customer. He'd spoke at, you know, the annual conference. They'd done case studies. They went on to triple in size in terms of as a customer. All good stuff. Um, but I remember at that point thinking, yeah, I, I've lost this. I've lost this deal because I've just ruined my friendship, as, as it were, with this person. But now, like, we're, you know, t- we're Instagram buddies. We're Facebook friends. We chat every kind of couple of weeks kind of thing. So it's, it's kind of funny in, 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 that, in that sort of context. Well, I think you sum it up beautifully. I think the the lesson that I give to people is when they're worried about having those uncomfortable conversations, because that's a learning in itself, is um, the all champion relationships that I've seen stand the test of time are ones that are born out of friction. Because mm-hmm. you, if you're not having, a, and I talked about this earlier this week even to my team, is you're not having conversations with the champion that feel contentious sometimes to feel like there's tension or friction or uh, a differing point of view then neither of you are engaged at the level of depth in the conversation where it matters where it's emotional where if you're not at an emotional layer of conversation you're at that service layer where everyone's just dipping their toe into not really describing how they feel and unless you're accessing that other stuff you're not really having a, a, a truthful conversation with someone about whether they're going to fight for you, whether they believe in the deal, 
whether they don't believe in that metric or that point of view or that use case, uh, and whether you can defend your point of view. So you're not really testing the relationship. Yeah. And as you know, champion building, it's like identify, build, test, use are the stages of champion building. So rarely we see mediocre salespeople ever get to that test bit where they're actually got enough trust to have a difficult conversation and they just skip past that and just hope that the building that they've done will work, but they've never actually validated if it will. And what you did there was, I'm going to finally call you out and test you. And what you were fortunate enough was to realize that he was a champion, right? You got the result you hoped for, but if he wasn't a champion, you'd have just spent six months trying to build him, but you wouldn't have known until that moment whether he failed or not. So we have to encourage testing people as early as possible in our process to get a read on whether that person is the right character to be a champion. I love that. Yeah. I think it's something John McMahon says around seeking discomfort as well. I know that's, that's what yeah. you're, you're talking about there, looking for that sort of conflict, that sort of friction. Bad news. Mm, yeah. That was always a, that was always a great sort of, for me, you know, a great, great sign of a, a real champion is when they tell you, you know, bad news. Uh, quickly, you know, that's the things you really want to hear. You don't want to just keep hearing good news because that, you know, that's obviously it, it doesn't really, if you're in control of your deal, good news should, you should already be aware of the good news. It's the bad news that's, that's behind the scenes when you can't see it that, that you want to know about. So that's a, yeah, super, super interesting one. Wow. Well, Jason, I, I feel like I could go on and, and, and continue this conversation for hours. I've got, you know, all of the things that there's so many topics I, I wanted to get into, but the, the ones that we've got, we, we talked about uh, uh, have superseded those 10x because uh, I, I just think that uh, you have such a, a refreshing view of our wonderful world of sales. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you now while you're on the record that I'd love to get you back on the show for a follow up to this to, to dig into more of those. So thank you for that. Um, but, um, for now, if, if, if people, are you hiring at the moment? What, what, what could, are you looking to, to find some, some new talent? Yes. Yeah, so specifically, actually, we, I uh, did a post about this on LinkedIn earlier this week. We are, um, based on our unprecedented success in our strategic accounts part of our business. Um, we're now expanding that practice, which is really good news. So we're hiring, we're looking for, the ICE criteria of intelligent character, coachable people with great experience. But people have, um, people who are out there that really want to make a difference in doing transformational deals in really strategic accounts where they feel like they need the right technology, the right market opportunity, the right coaching and leadership to go do something special. We now have a practice dedicated to those individuals where we want to go and make something you know, special happen. So we're hiring for those people right now. Wow. Those are the, those are the roles that very few and far between come around and and when they are they're not just roles because of um you know vacancies popping up but because you've had to increase the the size of the team that that's that's a super positive thing so uh yeah anyone listening um find you on linkedin is that the best place to catch you that's the best place good stuff brilliant well thank you so so much jason i've really really enjoyed this conversation um, and as, as we've already caught, you're going to come back on so we can get more into all this stuff and, and, and talk further, but yeah, thank you so, so much. And, um, yeah, may your champions be strong. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I'm, I'm just, I would like to say thank you to you too. It's like, um, um, I've learned a few things too, like in terms of just riffing about champion building and stuff. And I think the theme of today's session has been very much born out of like finding champions in your job to go work for finding champions in your company to go and build, finding champions in, in your deals and thinking about all that 
people stuff, which actually, like you said, I didn't know that we would go there in this conversation, but I really enjoyed yeah. just going deep in that, in that area. It's a fascinating topic, isn't it? Where you, where, where you, I bet you there's a book to be written about unpicking, um, great successes in business, great successes in careers, great successes in sport achievements, basically that are directly correlated or at least uh, linked to a champion being a, you know, a parent, being a partner, being a manager, um, being a, an inspiring character who wrote, you know, a, a book about themselves and their, their journey that's, you know, therefore became uh, a kind of a leading champion for people. So that, that's a fascinating topic in itself. And, um, yeah, it's been fun talking to you about it. Thanks. Really fun talking to you. Good stuff. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.